0: And thank you for joining us today for the VAM Alternative Assets FY22 Results Q&A webinar. My name is Dania Zinurova, and I'm the Portfolio Manager of VAM Alternative Assets. We're also very fortunate to have one of our investment partners here today, Managing Director and Partner of Allegro Funds, Faye who will discuss the portfolio that VAM Alternative Assets is invested in. Welcome, Faye. Faye is a managing director at Allegro Funds and is a member of its investment committee. He has 18 years of experience in finance and strategy in Australia, the U.S., and Asia, working for firms including Pacific Equity Partners, Babcock & Brown, and PAG, one of Asia's largest alternative asset managers. Faye is chair of GAL New Zealand and a non-executive director of Endeavor Learning Group and toll global express shipping business. Faye was previously chair of NKAHOYA Group and non-executive director of the Interiors Group. Now, before we continue with our very insightful discussion with Faye on Allegro's strategy, I would like to share with you investment portfolio performance for WMDM. Just to remind you, Wilson Asset Management Alternative Assets Fund uh, is your investment company. And today is a great opportunity to hear your questions and to receive your feedback. So I'm really looking forward to the Q&A part of our webinar. The WMA portfolio increased during the financial and calendar year, despite the challenging market conditions and the overall backdrop that we saw in the equities and fixed income. The NTA for WMA increased from $1.17 as of July 2021 to $1.24 as of July 2022. And these strong results really support our investment thesis that alternative assets play an important part in any investment portfolio by bringing strong diversification benefits, inflation hedge, interest rate hedge, as well as give access to thematic investing. The BAM Alternative Assets Board of Directors has declared a fully franked, franked full-year dividend of $0.04 per share, representing an annualized fully franked full-year dividend yield of 3.6% and a gross up dividend yield of 4.8%. The investment portfolio increased by 12.2% during the financial year 22. BAM Alternative Assets Investment Portfolio increased 14.6% per annum since appointment of Wilson Asset Management. And the profit reserve has been growing over this period. And I was really pleased to see the result on the profit reserve because it really indicates how strong the investment performance has been within the portfolio. So as of July this year, the company had 17.3 cents per share available in the profits reserve, before the payment of the fully franked final dividend of $0.02 per share. And just to give you an indication, this current profit reserve provides us with over four years of dividend coverage ratio. The profit reserve increased from $0.11.5 per share from last year. BAM Alternative Assets shares are currently trading at an attractive discount to net tangible assets of about 11.4% as at the end of August this year. We saw positive results within the portfolio on the back of successful exits across the portfolio. We had exits in our private equity portfolio, real estate. We also saw really good positive results from the real assets part of the portfolio. And we communicated with you in the past that we are in the process of revitalizing the investment portfolio by exiting maturing assets and recycling reinvesting capital into new investment opportunities. WMA's goal is to democratize alternative investing. And I'm really passionate about this, passionate about providing access to high quality alternative assets to our shareholders and deliver strong investment results. Faye, great to have you here. I see Allegro strategy as a very unique strategy in the Australian market and also in the current market environment I think your thesis is um, of particular interest to many investors. Could you please tell us a little more about Allegro business and the investment strategy of the Allegro Fund for where WMA invested in?
1: Yeah, happy to so. thanks for having me um, on this webinar uh, with you, Dania. Um, first of all, you know Allegro is a private equity fund whose purpose um, is we believe in better. And that is about transforming businesses that we invest in. We were established um, just under 20 years ago um, to ultimately drive transformation in the businesses that we invest in and hopefully leave it in a better place when we come to sell them. Um, we're currently investing from our fourth fund, which WAM um, our, our investors. I'm investing $750 million, um, Aussie dollars in the Australian and New Zealand market. And what we focus on or the opportunities we focus on are those where we can apply into active uh, roles complex situations in businesses that we can transform. And for us, what that means is that um, we think that we can grow value where it's more than just capital. It's not just about the money. In fact, most of the situations we invest in if the money or the capital or the value or the price you pay for an asset is probably the fourth or fifth consideration. It's actually what you can bring to the table to be a good partner for a vendor or a shareholder um, to actually drive value and then leave the business in a better place. And hopefully when you do that, you've made, you've made, made a return, um, and an adequate return that we're trying to deliver to our shareholders. For us, we're sector agnostic because we think that that capability spans across multiple sectors um, and is not sector specific. With the capability that we've built in our team across the deal team, as well as um, our operating uh, partner platform, and some of the businesses that um, you know, your clients may be aware of, that is in our current stable of, of businesses include Toll. So, you know, those green trucks that run around the street—that's um, one of our portfolio companies. Pizza Hut, I hope, hopefully some of you, you know, love our pizza. Um, mm-hmm. We own Best and Less and Posty, so hopefully some of you have babies and kids and buying Rompers there. And so we own a stable of portfolio companies across multiple sectors in different stages of transformation, and we're trying to bring real capability to make them better.
0: Thank you, Faye. And in terms of the current market environment and seeing some of the sectors going through major structural shifts, what does it mean for your investment strategy? What, what type of deals are you seeing currently?
1: Yeah, look, I think, firstly, I'd say we're really busy. I'd also say that we've been really busy for a really long time. Yeah. And what that means is that because of our investment strategy being about transformation with a quite a wide mandate, which we think is great, we see a high level of deals across the business cycle. Mm-hmm. And what happens is that when there are macro changes or headwinds, we just see a lift from a pretty high base as it is. And what we start to see is that we see specific, more specific situations happen when there are specific shocks happening in the system. Um, whether it be by sector or by situational base, and so right now we're absolutely seeing an elevated number of deals, but it's already off a pretty high base because of the way we invest. And what that means is that absolutely we're seeing more deals coming out, dealership in specific sectors, you know, like uh, building materials and construction, which is you know all across the news for the for the challenges that that they have. You know, but ultimately businesses that have high fixed high fixed costs and inability to pass on prices, basically, and can't actually mitigate the margin squeeze that's happening from all the cost pressures and all the supply chain issues that that, that are hitting them. Importantly for us, even though we see an elevated number of of deals, um, it doesn't mean that we then do more of those deals. Actually, (laughs) we're highly selective and most of the times. You know, whether it was a mining boom bust or a building construction boom bust, we actually tend to see more volume, but we probably do a proportion less deals because our job is ultimately to, to, to pick, you know, the business in that opportunity set that we believe that we can drive value versus just you know playing the playing the cycle, so to speak, in that portfolio and, yeah. and ultimately managing risk.
0: Thank you, Faye with regard to the newest deal that your team completed um there like i feel there there was such a good coverage of Gal new zealand um would you mind telling our shareholders more about the thesis of why you decided to pursue this deal and then perhaps also an overview of the strategy going forward on, on that business Absolutely. Look, first of all, I think with Gull, it
1: started with, um, and with all our businesses, what is um, what is the, the the strategic merits of that business that you know we're really attracted to? And I think with the Gull business, we have an opportunity, you know, in our words, to buy the best mousetrap in New Zealand. And what I mean by that is, we've got a business that is largely an unmanned petrol station business with a strategic. Um, import terminal that has no labour um, essentially on any of its um, sites um, it has no other services but fuel and it does ultimately provide for the customer what they want which is highly highly convenient fuel at the lowest prices and they can get in and get out in under two minutes and we believe that GAL does the best uh does that the best in the New Zealand market and has a very unique proposition and brand that's called the Gull Effect um, in the New Zealand market. So so we start with we think we've got the best model and the best proposition in the market to win and there are opportunities to grow, which we're currently exploring around, you know, more sites, business, uh, B2B, um, customers, um, energy trading um, schemes, um, loyalty programs, customer data. There's a whole gamut of um, initiatives that we're um, um, chasing right now. And then from a deal or a transaction perspective, um, we've got a business that was being sold by, you know, Ampol, which is listed on the Australian Stock Exchange, and they were a forced seller because of um, competition regulation needing them to sell this business. So the deal side of it was really interesting as well because Ampol had to sell. Now, they weren't a forced seller. Um, they were, sorry, they weren't a distressed seller, but they were a forced seller. And for us, that meant there was an opportunity to craft a really good deal and to buy well, which is which is in our DNA. You know, because one way to make sure you make money is always to buy well. Um, you yeah, know, that's the part that you can control. And then the other part we're trying to control is after we buy well, how do we make sure we have the best capability to grow these businesses to maximise value? Um, at the end of the day, I've, you know, one headline that astounds me and will be helpful for folks on this call We've got a business in Gal that currently makes you know 90 million dollars of EBITDA and has 35 people running that business. I mean, that, that's just an extraordinary great business, great. Not really great, you yeah. know, um, um, to, to run a business to have a business of that scale with so few people. Because you know, in this business, what was beautiful about it was it's just simple, you know. Yeah. And the more, the more we, you know, there's complexity in business, but when we find simple businesses that, you know, really meet the customer's needs. We get really excited by that, particularly when we can add um, and grow those businesses. One of the very important considerations for us, naturally, was ESG in this investment because it's a fossil fuel business at the end of the day. Our mandate is to transform businesses. So we, we are supposed to don't want to look or can't look or don't want to look. And actually, we should look there and be part of the solution. And that's certainly how we approach this business, with a very clear ESG strategy about how we're going to not only grow this business but actually position it for the energy transition that will come. And so not only should we do that, but it's actually good for business that we will do that because ultimately when we come to sell this business, you know, any future buyer will need the longevity of a business model that's prepared for the changes that the future will bring.
0: That's great. I really love that uh, view and love that standpoint on on the ESG front because just by excluding certain sectors and certain businesses, we as asset owners and asset managers don't really make an active positive impact. Um, I think through your model, through this active ownership and transformation strategy, this is where the impact will come from. And I'm very excited, Faye, to see more deals coming through. Thank you very much. And thank you to those shareholders who've been sending us their questions for the webinar. I will pass now to our Corporate Affairs Advisor, Zoe Landry, to begin begin the Q&A session.
2: Perfect. Thanks, Dania. Um, Nice to have you, Faye. Uh, Dania, the first question is for you, and it's come through from Damien. And he asks, what does the pipeline of activity for private equity and alternative assets look like in the next year or two if we enter a recession?
0: <laughs> it's, a, it's a great question. I just went yesterday to yesterday night to a Bloomberg event and there was a panel of um, economists um, debating whether we are in recession in Australia or whether we are entering the recession soon. And the reality is, No one really has clear answers. Um, We do look at various macroeconomic indicators and a lot of the future direction of the economy really depends on RBA policy and how far they would go uh, with interest rate rises. But what I always do um, when I look at the opportunity set within alternatives is looking for the factors like quality and downside protection. So within WMA, uh, the investments that we make in the portfolio, it's not about chasing the highest returns on yes. taking the highest possible risks. It's about finding the balanced um, portfolio construction where we have a healthy um Amount of income-producing assets, amount of income-producing investments, and then um, combining it with growth assets. So, in terms of the future opportunity set in the current economic environment, and I wouldn't say in the, um, you know, in, in the recessionary environment because we still don't know if we are going to be in the recession. What's clear is that. The current market condition has definitely changed. What asset owners and investors have been enjoying in Australia and in some other global markets over the last decade is clearly changing. So we've been investing in the environment where interest rates were at the historically low levels, inflation has been low, healthy GDP growth, relatively low and healthy unemployment rate for the economy. And all those factors, they really enabled investors to be quite flexible in what assets they approach, where they invest within the alternative space. For me, it's about finding quality investments and being very disciplined with the enterprise. So within private equity, we'll continue following our mega trends investing across megatrends like growing aging population, and there will be some news coming within our portfolio. There will be some new deals within this megatrend. But again, when we look at this megatrend, industries like healthcare services continues to be very strong and very attractive, in particular on the diagnostic side, uh, which you know, has been lagging historically in in in, in Australia. In digitalization, we'll continue looking for opportunities um, that are connected to this mega trend, either improving um, current um, operational uh, efficiencies within businesses through innovation in technology or digitalizing businesses. And again, we continue seeing opportunities Or in sectors like online education, online healthcare services, within digital infrastructure as well. Climate change will remain a huge one. Um, We did share with our shareholders, I believe a few months ago, that we've been looking at some opportunities in renewable energy space. So we, we continue um, doing more work on that, and will hopefully update the shareholders soon on, on any new initiatives in that space. So I'm not looking at this that we are now in the weaker macroeconomic environment, and that means the opportunity set is shrinking. I'm just ensuring that we are remaining true to our investment process. Our investment due diligence is robust focusing a lot on the risk assessment of the investments. We are talking about illiquid investments. We invest in assets that will be in the portfolio for five, seven, sometimes 10 years. So doing this groundwork and ensuring we are not taking too much unreasonable risk within the portfolio this would be my main focus, and this is how how I would answer that question. Apologies if if the answer was too long.
2: <laughs> Thanks, Dania. Um, we'll actually stay with you. Um, this next one's from Karen, and she says, "Why is WAM alternative assets trading at a discount to NTA, even though it's reported solid performance?"
0: Uh, thank you. Thank you, Karen. So when we look at discount to NTA, when we look at our share price, there are several factors in play. So while our shareholder base or the number of the shareholders in uh, WMA portfolio has been growing over the last 18 months, and I believe uh, based on the latest numbers we had, we grew the number of shareholders by over 40% since the appointment of Wilson Asset Management. At the same time, because of the strong investment performance within the portfolio, NTA continued growing. So, I did mention last year NTAs was $1.17. This year NTA is $1.24. And as NTA grows, it does impact the discount to NTA. So, inevitably, discount would widen. So, what our team has been working on, and a lot of this is thanks to our corporate affairs team and our investment specialists, um, Marty and Will, who have been focusing a lot on WMA, is about educating our shareholders and the broader market on WMA portfolio, on alternative investing, and strengthening the brand in the market by promoting WMA at the events like ASX Investor Day, other conferences. So, as Jeff always tells us, it does take time, patience, and persistence to reduce and eliminate this discount to NTA. And we are on the right path. Um, because even looking at the current discount to NTA for WMA and some of our peers. Uh, our portfolio has been holding up really well, despite the current market conditions.
2: Thank you, Dania. Um, and Faye, we'll move to you now. And this one is um, from Stephanie. Uh, she says, Dania often speaks about the mega trends that underpin the WMA investment strategy. And she asks, what trends are driving Allegro's strategy?
1: Yeah, look, um, first of all, we're always cognizant of investing into sectors that are experiencing secular growth. Um, Not only does that help um, ultimately um, support the transformation of the business, but something we're very keenly focused on is when we target any new investment, we invest on a three to five-year horizon. So the way we think about the world is not only do you have to care about when you buy a business, But you have to look forward three to five years and think about what's actually the underlying trends in that sector or space or business when you come to sell that business. Because um, any future buyer of that business is also going to be concerned about or interested in about uh, whether that's a business in a sector that is still attractive. And ultimately, for us, you want to be investing into a sector that is ultimately growing and into a business that is ultimately growing. And for us, we uh, focus on opportunities that we can take that have, obviously, that have experienced some level of dislocation or requires capability to grow. So they kind of grow within that underlying trend um, to, to, to transform. And so with that, um, we have, um, as by way of some examples, Absolutely, uh, healthcare is a space that is, um, is, um, is, is growing. Um, having said that, though, because you're investing into such an attractive sector that's growing, people are paying incredibly high multiples uh, for businesses in those sectors. And so, the, the discipline for us is how do we find those opportunities within those trends that are specific to our core competencies to try and drive value and maintain, maintaining discipline on an entry valuation? Um, at the same time, that's not easy, but you know we're trying to do two to four more transactions a year. Uh, PRC, which is one of our investment companies, is the leading uh, radiology business in, in WA. Um yeah, that's a business that we bought um, for, you know, under 10 times, and currently that sector is trading at 15 times for comparable businesses and comparable transactions. Um, and, and so with that, you have to really find that opportunity within those trends that you genuinely think that you can add, um, add value to. Um, Yeah, absolutely, climate change is uh, uh, an underlying theme, if you will, but again, you know, that's a generic issue, you know, which part of climate change are you you going to play in and, and what are you starting with and what are you going to turn it into? I mean, that's a really important um, question and how we think about driving value. You know, Gala is a great example of that, which I spoke about earlier. We think that um, as we position it for the future, it is going to be worth more than we bought, bought it for. But within each and every one of our portfolio companies, there is a clear ESG strategy about how to transform those businesses because it's just good for business and good for value. Um, you know, Toll is a classic example of that, where we've got um, lots of carbon emitting trucks and ships and planes. Um, and the way we do business, um, one of the key um, legs of our thesis was to transform that part of our business to a net zero. And really, by doing so, one, it's good for, for, for ESG, but it's actually great for business and great for value. Um, and so um, I think those trends around you know, healthcare, ageing population, um, uh, climate change, uh, food, absolutely playing into every single one of our portfolio companies, Uh, But we're not just trying to invest in a sector and hope the sector grows our value. We are active
2: investors trying to drive a transformation to build a better business within the growing sector. Thanks, Faye. And the next question is for Dani, and it's come through from Dave. And he asks, will the future investment opportunities be utilised using cash, or will you be looking to raise new money?
0: So... The, the, that's a great question. The current level of cash is about 27%. However, we need to look also at the current level of commitment. So the, if we take into account our current commitments to new investments, it's about 25%. And as with any alternative assets strategy, it does take time to deploy the capital into new opportunities. So it's a slightly different dynamic when you commit capital to new investments and then see this capital being deployed versus more liquid asset classes like equities. My expectation is that As the portfolio, some part of the portfolio is still maturing and we are exiting those maturing assets, this capital will be used for further new investments within the portfolio. And as we um, continue our work on eliminating discount to NTA, when we meet our premium target and we'll be trading at NTA, we will be coming to the market and raising more capital. But... We'll be doing it in a gradual manner so that we don't um, have too much what's called dry powder within the portfolio. Um, I always am a big fan of a more patient approach when it comes to making investments in those asset classes, but definitely a combination of available cash Um, capital proceeds coming from exits and new capital raisings going forward.
2: Thank you, Dania. Um, And we'll stay with you. Um, This next one's come through from George. Uh, It's a detailed question. Mm -hmm. Uh, In regards to private equity investments in private companies, as these companies are valued periodically by independent valuers, is it argued their accurate valuation lags those of public listed companies where pricing can be seen daily on stock exchanges. Given the recent market falls in stock markets, does this mean that the valuations of private equity investments held by WMA are also likely to fall in coming months and that this will negatively impact WMA's NTA?
0: Excellent question, George. First part of your question, absolutely, you're absolutely right that valuations – in alternative assets, including private equities, they do tend to lag their listed counterparts. Um, We do see a lot of noise, what I call market noise, often irrational um, behavior of investors on the equity markets that to some extent masks the true value of the underlying businesses. Within asset classes like private equity, independent valuations are usually done on the annual basis. And there are various valuation methods that independent valuers use when they go through this process. Um, Market comparables is only one of them, and often market comparables approach is used to test either the DCF approach or EBITDA multiple approach. So the valuation of the private equity businesses are not necessarily driven or dictated by the valuations in the equity markets. What's important to understand as well, that in some sub-asset classes within private equity, for example, venture capital, the market volatility would be more impactful on the valuations of their businesses because, for most of the venture capital businesses, the main exit route is through IPO. And we we all observed that pre-IPO and venture capital um, strategies they were very popular over the last three years, and a lot of this was also on the back of the booming equity markets. Now, in the current environment, investors are more cautious about this, and we do see valuations within venture capital. They are um, being corrected. Um, Within WMA portfolio, we had about 8% exposure to venture capital. This is the inherited exposure that we had. I'm not planning to grow or continue investing in this asset class because while for some investors, venture capital might be attractive, I do see this asset class as one that has probably the highest or the greatest dispersion between losers and winners within the portfolio, it can be quite volatile and it probably has the highest equity beta um, compared to all other alternative asset classes. So in other words, when I look at our NTA and we just went through our annual valuation assessment, for most part of the portfolio, there was minimal impact Uh, of the equity market volatility. And that all comes down to how you construct alternative assets portfolio, diversification, various equity, uh, various uh, risk premiums that um, are driving the returns within the portfolio. I hope that answers the question. Thank you,
2: Dania. Um, And we'll stay with you. Um, This one's from Thomas. He says, why why, WAM alternative? Why is WAM alternative assets 35.4% exposed to water rights? And does the threat of another La Nina put this into question? <laughs>
0: um, yes. So definitely, you know, very um, relevant and timely question, as uh, I'm sure many of us, in particular on the eastern seaboard, are suffering from this weather condition and. It is true that we are likely to face uh, more rainfall for the next 12 to 18 months, not necessarily driven by La Nina, this time by the weather um, and the combination of the um, various cyclones uh, across Indian Ocean. Let's let's take a step back on this question. Um, When we took over or when we started managing WMA portfolio, to me, our exposure to water rights represented quite a high concentration from the portfolio construction point of view. So, as a portfolio manager, I approached it from the way that anything over 20, 25% within the portfolio that exposed only to one single strategy. Does present quite a high concentration risk. So, from the portfolio construction point of view, I made the decision to reduce the allocation in Water Rights Fund to about 15 to 20% over the course of this year. So, we already received the first tranche of our redemption last quarter. I expect another tranche this quarter and will continue in the fourth quarter. While we are doing this, I still see this asset class as a really important asset class within our portfolio, because water rights is one of the very few asset classes that actually has negative correlation to other asset classes, not only more traditional like equities and fixed income, but also to other alternative asset classes. And that's an asset class where the returns are driven by both income return and capital appreciation. Income return obviously can be very volatile because it's highly correlated to the weather conditions. So when we see increasing amount of rainfall, the yield from this asset class does reduce, but then we need to look at the capital uh, growth and capital appreciation of this asset class. And it's currently at the historically highest level. So as an asset class, water rights had a stellar performance over the past decade. Um, as the um, part of the WMA portfolio, yes, I agree, high concentration risk, which I'm working on um, reducing it over the next um, three to six months.
2: Thank you, Dania. Um, and this next one is from Robert, and he says, the cash cash allocation from the portfolio has been quite high for some time. What is the long-term target cash allocation? Is there a time frame to reduce the cash allocation to the, of the portfolio to the target?
0: Yes, the, um, the plan is not to have such a high cash level over the long term. What we are going through now is fairly normal for a portfolio that is going through a transition, and we are going through a transition. So most of the unlisted investments within the portfolio um, I would say they were vintage 2015, 16, 17. They are now maturing. We are exiting those investments and we are reinvesting this capital into new investment opportunities. So when I think about the current cash level, albeit 25% is committed cash. So I don't really see it as a true cash long term i would say having around 10 to 15% of cash within the portfolio would be a healthy reasonable level because if the portfolio is fully invested then we are not really well positioned to pursue new investment opportunities in the market and in alternatives investment opportunities come in a very sporadic Manner So, I do want to be in a position that when tomorrow we'll find a new attractive investment for WMA, I do want to be in a position to have enough cash within the portfolio to pursue this opportunity.
2: Thank you, Dania. Uh, And Faye, we'll move back to you. Um, And this question is from John. I think you've touched on this uh, previously. He asks, what opportunities are you seeing right now in the turnaround and transformation investing space? How would rising interest rates and an inflationary environment impact your opportunity set?
1: Yeah, I think, um, as you say, sorry I answered it earlier, but um, we see transactions through the cycle and um, macro structural um, challenges in the market lift the volume we see and depending on what they are, create blips of um, additional opportunities. Um, and so we're seeing um, the issue of, sort of the specific issue raised of, of interest rates um, and inflation is affecting all businesses. Um, and so we, we can see that not only inside our own portfolio companies, but also in the new opportunities coming, coming towards us. Um, and those are challenges that, you know, Crystal balling, no I can tell, but are not going away anytime soon. And absolutely, we're seeing different businesses being able to deal with those challenges in different ways. And so back to what opportunity, absolutely we're seeing blips of enhanced or increased opportunity in certain sectors that are more affected by those, um, those issues. I mentioned, you know, building materials is a classic one, housing construction is a classic one. But in fact, what we're finding and why I think we have a longevity of a business and flow is that irrespective of the sector, what we find is that in any situation, not all businesses actually have the capability to actually manage through those challenges. And those are the action, those are the opportunities that we believe that we can add value to. Um, and what we're finding is that um, there are uh, businesses increasingly looking for us to actually help them um, manage through um, these challenges. And those are um, you know, pleasing for us um, situations we'd love to be involved in when you've got fundamentally a good business that is going through some kind of structural dislocation, doesn't have the capability to manage its way through, whether it be its business model, whether it be the management team, whether it be its balance sheet, you know, whatever it may be, They're kind of saying we don't know what to do, or we don't know how to do it, or how do we do it best, and then looking for a partner to actually help them figure that out, right? But at its core, for us, is is it fundamentally a good business that's going to be around and they can grow, and to do we have do we have the capability to kind of help them manage it through? And so we're seeing we're seeing that opportunity set that coming to look for us because of the capability we've built and hopefully demonstrated in our existing portfolio companies that we've sold, and et cetera, et cetera. And so that, that's a great um, um, flow to see. The second set um, we're seeing uh, you know, good businesses, founder-led businesses, um, where the founder or the shareholders are tired, right? I think generally speaking, what we're seeing is that across all businesses, um, you're getting people who are tired because they've had to deal with so much in such a short period of time that, you know, they're they're fatigued and they're looking for someone else in the room with them to make decisions and to create a buffer. Um, And ultimately, who have done it before, whether it's you're building a digital capability or whether it do, you know, how do you address the cost base or how do you do, you know, how how should we best think about growth? Um, You know, they want someone else in the room and, 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 you know, it's well known, it's a lonely life at the top, um, and we're finding more and more of these founders wanting someone, another adult in the room to have a conversation with and show them the bird. And so we're seeing these, what we call partnership deals um, increasingly coming towards us. Again, people seeking us out, not just for money, uh, but for actual capability, right? Because you can find that kind of money anywhere. Um, the last one we've is that we're increasingly seeing
0: more what we call corporate opportunities. And so we're seeing larger groups wanting to sell either non-core or uh, non-core divisions or underperforming divisions. Um, and these are probably you
1: know, opportunities or ideas or issues that they've had for a long time and it's been stewing. Um, and certainly the current environment has made them go, well, we should just go, Let, let's let's make that call. That's easy to decide to sell something. But again, they need to look across the table um, most of the time and believe that the other person across the table that's going to to buy this business can actually do what they're going to say they're going to do because they're only selling one division of their business and there are always linkages back to the parts of the businesses that they're going to keep. And so if the future buyer of that business isn't going to be able to do the things they're going to say, it potentially has quite a serious impact back to the part that they're trying to keep. Um, and again, that comes back to... You know, looking for a partner, or looking for a buyer who has the capability to take to take out the non-core business or the underperforming business and do it in a sensible way. One great example of this is when we bought Toll off Japan Post. They sold us the Global Express division, but they were actually keeping you know a large part of the, the Toll business. The linkages between the two were significant. Uh, and any disruption of the part they were selling would
0: dramatically affect the part they were keeping in. One classic example of that is the brand, the toll brand, as hopefully
1: many of, many of those at the webinar recognised with the green trucks on the street, is a more than 100-year-old brand. They try to business to not destroy any value because for the next two years we have a shared brand. Um, and having the capability that we understood how to transition a brand, build a new brand and do the right thing by the business of the people was critical for them picking us as the buyer of this business to do the right thing, um, but also have the capability on how to transition businesses. So, you know, I think across across certain sectors, um, certainly across capability, across founder-led looking for or shareholder-led looking for, for partners, and then last of all, you know, corporate car We're seeing our deal sheet fill up or pretty full on those,
0: you know, subset opportunities. Thank you, Faye. And Faye, sorry, Zoe. I think that like one part of the question was also around um, rising interest rates and inflation. And I think maybe Faye on rising interest rates, I I do get this question quite often as well in terms of the cost of debt and the use of leverage. I know, like for, for Allegro, you have a very, like, pretty conservative approach towards leverage. Yes. You that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Good, very, very, thank you for the call out, Daniel. We, we don't like leverage, is where we start. Um, ultimately, it comes down to risk, right? Because we're trying to drive um, a strategic and operational transformation in business to really get performance up. And what we don't want to layer on top is financial risk while we're trying to drive operational and strategic transformation. Um, And so as a result of that, we don't use much leverage and at times any leverage at all in our investments um, um, to not increase, disproportionately increase the risk profile of transformation, and so our businesses in general have very low leverage levels. Um, yes, the cost of debt affects our businesses, but not to the degree that you know um, that makes us concerned um, across our you know portfolio set. Once the business is transformed, you know later on in our investment, it's stable, it's performing, it's growing. Absolutely, we would reconsider whether we take on uh, further debt to you know, create equity return, but at the end of the day, we're trying to drive equity returns by changing and transforming the business rather than financial, uh,
0: financial leverage or uh, financial engineering. Thank you. Thank okay.
2: uh, you. And, Daniel, we'll move back to you now. Um, this is a two-part question from Wayne, and he asks, are dividends likely to increase alongside positive performance,
0: and what is the dividend coverage? Um, thank you. The dividend coverage ratio currently is over four point, over four years, so 4.3 from my memory. I unfortunately am not in a position to comment on the dividend policy because it's ultimately the board's decision. Um, but I would say looking at the profit reserve growing from 11.5 cents last year to over 17 cents this year, um, you know, it's it's a good indication where the company is at in terms of the dividend coverage and how healthy is the profit reserve. So I would prefer to leave it at that, and uh, perhaps when next time we have one of our directors on the webinar, we can we can cover this question.
2: Perfect. Thank you, Dania. Uh, And we'll stay with you. And this one's from Deborah. She says, regarding the fee structure, do, uh, do shareholders pay double management fees from the investment partners and Wilson Asset Management?
0: Yes, that's correct. So the fee structure is Wilson Asset Management charges 1%. We don't have performance fee. Um, which is, you know, quite a difference compared to some of our peers who have management fee plus performance fee. And at the underlying portfolio level, we have another fee structure. The current total fee load or management expense ratio is 1.7%. So that's including Wilson asset management, management fees, and the fee that is charged on the underlying investment portfolio, so 0.7%. That's a very competitive fee structure. And just to give a sense to our shareholders, some of the strategies or offerings that I see in the market that are being offered to retail investors or wholesale investors, the management fee often starts from 2%, 2 2.5%. Uh, most of the time, performance fee on top of that. Now, I'm coming from institutional background, and I've been always advocating on fair treatment and fair structures for the fees. Um, The role of the performance fee is to incentivize investment professionals to deliver on the investment returns and to align with investors' interest. The role of the management fees is to enable the business to resource the team, to ensure the governance is of good quality. There is a good operational setup within the business. In other words, the whole purpose of the management fee is to run the business in a way that it's being successful and it's being sufficiently resourced in order to deliver on the investment returns for the investors. And um, given our list of the investment partners, so given the quality and profile of the investment partners, all of them have been working and are working predominantly with institutional investors. So the fee structure that we have within the portfolio is really best-in-class fee structure that you, you can find in the market.
2: Thank you, Dania. And we've just had another question from Dave. He asks, "Do you pay the standard fee on underlying funds, or can you negotiate the fee?
0: We can negotiate the fee. Um, I would say it's I would link this question to uh, implementation um, route as well because, Usually, when investors look at pooled funds or closed-end funds, uh, funds would have investment terms, including uh, fee structures that are offered to investors. Now, depending on the size of the commitment, investors often have an opportunity to negotiate the fees. Now, if we look at other implementation routes like separate mandates and co-investments, often fee structures are tailored specifically for those individual investors who co-invest and who um, set up separate mandates. So we are uh, in the process of setting up a separate mandate with one of our investment partners and the fees that we negotiate with them are very attractive, they, um, they would be probably much more attractive than you can find in, um, in the private equity space in Australia. And that's really based on our strong relationship with the investment partner and on our willingness to continue co-investing in, in their deals. Um, it, probably another example with uh, Allegro and, and Faye can add on this with institutional investors, often there are also opportunities to manage the total fee load by uh, doing co-investment. So, in the case of Allegro, um, investors or limited partners had opportunity to invest in the main fund, Fund Four, and there was also a car side vehicle that is predominantly focusing on large deals and does co-investments where, where the fee structure is done in a slightly different way from the fund.
1: Danny, i I'd just add, um, certainly in the Libro opportunity set, particularly when we see large transactions Mm -hmm. um, or unique transactions where some of our investors may have a strong appetite for, we absolutely actively uh, try and bring to those LPs additional kind of investment opportunities because it's a, it's, a, it's an area that a lot of our LPs would love to invest further into. Um, so, Toll, uh, PRC, Garland, um all of those transactions and more had co-investment um, capital from our existing LPs on top of their commitments inside our fund uh, already, uh, and we were very happy to, to bring those to, to our investors. Obviously.
2: Thank you, Finn. Thank you. And Dania, this next one is from Heather, and she asks, "Can you explain more about the process?" selecting a new investment partner what criteria must they meet and where can we find more about more about them
0: um it's a timely question zoe right because we are um we are going to release our new educational videos um on um, wma and its investment partners so we will be introducing all of our investment partners and our shareholders can learn more about their businesses, their strategies and teams and meet key investment professionals. Uh, in terms of the investment due diligence, um, I you know I pride myself uh, on the level of robustness of the due diligence that we do uh, when we make decisions with whom we invest and what asset class we invest and what strategies. And I'd usually like to think about this as six success factors. When we look at the businesses, so we look at the overall business structure, organizational structure, equity ownership, uh, how sustainable and how profitable this business is. Again, looking at everything from the lens of long-term investor. If we invest now, is this business going to be still there in 10 years' time? Is this business going to be successful? Um, very important looking at the alignment with the investors as well. That's another area of that I include in key success. And alignment can be achieved through co-investment from general partners or from fund managers and key investment professionals. Specific performance fee structure, basically, incentivizing key investment professionals to focus on the investment uh, performance and deliver on the targets and exceed the targets. Looking at the investment professionals, investment teams, how well the team is resourced. So what we do, we would go and meet with the investment teams. We have interviews or research meetings with investment professionals, um, understanding Is the team adequately resourced considering the current level of funds and the management or considering the strategy? Is there the right skill set within the team? Then looking at the investment strategy itself, opportunity set in the market. In other words, does it make sense to invest in this strategy in the current market environment? Is it a cyclical strategy or is it a strategy like in the case with Allegro that you would like to have within your portfolio throughout economic cycles. And and um, areas such as portfolio management or portfolio construction, where we would look at the track record, um, was not really possible to do the asset tours, but usually we'd go and do asset tours. We'll either visit businesses or assets where our investment partners have equity stakes or where they invested in the past. So understanding the businesses, the quality of the businesses. And as a result of this investment due diligence, we produce a very detailed investment due diligence report, which is then presented at the investment committee meeting. We have uh, four members on our investment committee and all members come with um, a lot of experience in their respective asset classes. Um, And often we invite our investment partners to present to the investment committee as well. So they have the opportunity to meet investment partners. I hope that that gives a bit of a insight in a nutshell in the investment process.
2: Definitely. Thank you, Dania. Uh, And that actually concludes all the questions that we've received today. Um, So I'll pass back to you, Dania, for um, any closing remarks.
0: Well, th- thank you very much again. Thank you, Faye, for taking the time out of your busy day and telling us more about Allegro. Thank you to our shareholders for dialing in and for supporting WMA. Again, it's your company. So please feel free to send your feedback, send your question, questions to us uh, at any time or give us a call if you would like to discuss anything The recording of the call will be available on our website shortly, and we look forward to continue working for you um, and engaging with you going forward. Thank you.